Hello, everyone, and welcome to I4CP's Next Practices Weekly podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Tom Stone, a senior research analyst at I4CP, the Institute for Corporate Productivity, the leading authority on next practices in human capital. The Next Practices Weekly podcast is one of the ways we share those practices with you by interviewing top HR leaders and facilitating discussion with the broader HR community on what high-performance organizations are doing differently with their people practices. From HR strategy to talent acquisition, learning and development, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and much more. Recently, I hosted a call that featured two of my I4CP colleagues, CEO and co-founder Kevin Oakes and senior research analyst Catherine Brecken, who together presented some key findings from I4CP's latest major study, Culture Fitness, the Healthy Habits of High-Performance Organizations. But before we get to that, just a quick word on I4CP's big upcoming event, the Next Practices Now Conference. This annual gathering for HR leaders is coming up soon, March 27th through the 30th. We've got an outstanding lineup of speakers and we'll have a record number of attendees this year as well. So please consider joining hundreds of your peer HR leaders in Scottsdale, Arizona for this unique and powerful vendor-free event. To register, just visit i4cp.com forward slash conference. Okay, now for the key findings from our latest study, Culture Fitness, led by my colleagues Kevin Oakes and Catherine Brecken. All right. Well, thank you, Tom. Uh, appreciate that nice intro. And uh, hopefully you'll be monitoring some of the questions in the chat uh, from folks and uh, yeah. feel free to chime in at any time. I'm uh, very happy to welcome Catherine Brecken. Catherine and I have been doing a lot of these presentations together. Catherine, good to see you this morning. I, I hear you are out in zero degree weather this morning. Nice to see you this morning as well. And everyone else on the call, it's great to be here. And yeah, it was a zero degrees, balmy, downright balmy for a little jog this morning. I'd okay. get ready for the call, wake up, you know. Catherine is in uh, upstate Minnesota. So uh, <laughs> kudos to you for uh, for getting out in that weather. Well, also kudos to you, Catherine, for uh, creating such a really interesting study here called Culture Fitness, the Healthy Habits of High Performance Organizations. Catherine was the lead analyst on this study, and it's the latest in our work around culture overall. We've been fascinated uh, by the subject of organizational culture and how much of an impact it really has on the financial performance of organizations and so many other aspects of companies. And it really builds on the work that we did with culture renovation, uh, which we turned into a book and we'll talk about towards the end uh, on how do you change organizational culture. But uh, one, of the, one of the key findings I thought, Catherine, from this study really revolved around the connection to financial performance uh, of the organizational culture. I love this stat because if there's anybody in your organization who uh, poo-poos the importance of culture, you really just need to show them this, that high-performance organizations are nearly six times more likely to have a healthy culture, what we call a fit culture, uh, compared to low-performance organizations. And this also had an impact on productivity overall, uh, Catherine, something that you've uh, that you researched and um, and through regression analysis found some interesting correlations. Uh, absolutely. Um, and so 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 back up just a little bit too to provide perspective. Um, our report here is based on a major survey and dozens of interviews that we've done with HR leaders over the past year. Um, we had a survey that was fielded in September and October and about a thousand respondents representing 53 countries. Um, roughly half of those were uh, large organizations with uh, over a thousand employees. And, and right, so that right out of the gate, key finding was you know, this connection between market performance and a healthy culture. Um, but we wanted to dig a little deeper and find out why, you know, what's what's the relationship, what's going on, what's impacting what. And so um, we did a, a regression analysis um, uh, um, and our statistical model found a very strong correlation between healthy cultures and employee productivity, increased employee productivity specifically. Um, and, and that employee productivity, therefore, had a strong connection to market performance. So it's sort of the, the missing link, if you will, um, in that relationship. And really, you know, it, it speaks, again, to helping get culture out of that sort of squishy verbiage um, and really making, you know, it part of a quantitative 
um, strategy that, that you can do to increase market performance. An important aspect of this study too, Catherine, was that we were really looking at culture since the beginning of the pandemic and what has happened really over the last couple of years to organizational culture. Uh, and I think in, in this case around productivity, it's a very interesting finding. Uh, certainly recently, there's been a lot written about uh, the BLS statistics that have shown uh, overall in America anyway, productivity, non-farm productivity, I should clarify, uh, has decreased. And so there's been a lot of speculation that that is because of remote work and, and uh, flexible work. And as a result, a number of CEOs have asked employees, in some cases forced employees, back into the office in an effort to improve productivity. Most of what we found in this study is that that probably has almost no effect on productivity, maybe even a negative effect. What really affects productivity is the health of the overall culture. And we'll get into some of the particulars of that. Um, but I wish these these same CEOs would uh, spend the effort that they've uh, that they've expended to get people back into the office on how do we improve the culture of the organization. Mm -hmm. On that note, uh, Kevin, there was a fascinating article in Fortune this morning that looked at productivity using those BLS numbers and tracking when employees were going back to the office. And they were able to correlate um, the times when um, leaders were, were pulling employees back into the office with reduced productivity. And the right. culture, they're saying the culture that's created when employees demand it, when leaders demanded, you know, employees come back to office, the culture suffered. And perhaps that is what, you know, resulted in that reduced productivity. So go right to our research, really. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I saw that same article and it's uh, it is a fascinating one. We'll have to work that talk track in more formally to our uh, presentation <laughs> Sorry, yeah. um, But I thought that was interesting. And, you know, we, we do follow um, a lot of articles, a lot of headlines. And here's just a snapshot of some of the headlines that we've been following uh, around culture and, and what companies are really worried about um, as we've emerged from the pandemic, as we've um, moved to new work models, there's been a lot of um, talk and a lot of articles just around what is what has happened to our culture. And what we've been advising companies to do is instead of being passive or reactive to uh, what, what the pandemic has done to your culture, the smart companies are being very proactive. They're taking um, actions to make sure that they're developing the culture that they want for the future um, and, and I think uh, a lot of the lessons that we've come out with in the research really help um, those organizations take the right steps towards creating a healthy culture. But unfortunately, um, we've seen a number of cultures suffer during the pandemic. And Catherine, I'll let you walk through a few of the, uh, you know, these slides just around what has happened to culture in some companies uh, during the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, as you can see here, our, our survey found that more than a third of organizations reported that their culture actually became more toxic uh, over the past two years. Um, and if you go to the next slide, you can kind of see why. Let's see. That's because if there's ever a reason to highlight the importance of culture, it's these organizations with toxic cultures were more likely to suffer statistically from these bulleted items here that, that Kevin is laying out, disrespectful behavior, senior leaders who don't trust employees, employees who don't trust senior leaders. This was this is key. This had a negative correlation to market performance, workforce outcomes and culture health. Some of the strongest correlations in the study, in fact. 57% of organizations with poor market for performance, by the way, said this is a problem, employees not trusting senior leaders. Um, leaders favoring on-site versus remote employees. We've heard a lot about proximity bias and how toxic that can be in the news, I feel like, lately. And our research here at I4CP certainly backs that up. Um, unsafe environments for expressing opinions and concerns. That's a very big hit to any culture that's trying to emphasize safety. Um, bullying, this had a very strong correlation to poor culture, health and workforce outcomes, pay inequity, lack of recognition and lack of inclusiveness. Um, those last two had strong negative correlations to workforce outcomes and culture health, by the way. And you know, from this, we found several traits of toxic cultures, which you coined uh, the, the toxic nine, Catherine. So I'll let, you, I'll let you also explain this one. Well, I mean, it turns out Organizations that indicated their culture was toxic or unfit, as we've been describing it in the report, were describing their organizations with common traits. Um, these are the traits that they sort of uh, 
correlated specifically to those with the the poorest health uh, in their culture. And um, they had, let's see, I think it was 26 options to choose from, 26 different traits that, that participants in the survey could pick, only five of to, to describe their culture. So they had to pick their top five of 26, which included an other category, right, with an open response option. And these were the nine that rose to the top of our analysis. Um, in any one of these, in our regression analysis, when we controlled for market performance and the size of the organization, accounted for 15 to 22 percent of how participants rated their culture health. So these are essentially drivers of negative culture, and, and they tend to feed off of each other, and, and they it steam. there's a steamrolling effect that would make it worse. Yeah, and I I think um, you know from a uh, indicator perspective, one of the things that you've been advising companies, Catherine, is, is this is almost a canary in the coal mine situation. If you're seeing some of these traits in your culture, it's uh, an indicator that you've probably got other issues as well. I'm struck by just how frequent these were mentioned versus uh, companies that said they had healthy cultures. It's really startling. Uh, how often people would would mention these um, in toxic cultures or unfit cultures? Absolutely, these are these are excellent cues. So, in any listening strategy, if these are the ways that your employees are commonly describing your organizational culture, that's a really good indication you've got at least a pocket of toxicity within the organization. I'll I'll just jump in and, and note that th this is a very interesting list as well. As you said, Catherine, these were the ones from a much broader set that that rose to the top. Um, some of these are clearly, you know, toxic, disrespectful, insensitive. But a few of these are, are I would I would have thought going in were maybe only mildly toxic, like conflict avoidant or even hierarchical. Uh, I mean, the military is hierarchical. Lots of organizations have gotten by with some degree of of hierarchy over the years, and and maybe some degree of hierarchy is even necessary. But the fact that even those are on this list and have that powerful correlation that you see there on the right, um, that that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think, Tom, as you look at this list, um, things like hierarchical and bureaucratic certainly go together. And what it equates to is a slow moving organization, one that is not as agile, right, in times where we have had to be extremely agile and, uh, and adapt to changes out in the environment. And that's another thing that we found in the, in the study is that companies that were averse to change, where uh, the employee base really uh, despised change, you know, wanted it to be, uh, wanted everything to be the same, and when change happened, found it to be exhausting, wearing them down. Those typically were uh, organizations that had unfit cultures. The cultures where the employee base said, you know what, change is not only normal, but uh, we see it as an opportunity. It's expected out in the environment. We're going to we're going to take advantage of it. Those tended to be the healthier cultures. So I think there's a, you know, an interesting theme around that time where you look at something like a hierarchical and think, OK, you know, that's not unusual, but it really does equate to that agility uh, factor, in my opinion. Now, there were a couple other stats that I thought were pretty interesting, um, and we wanted to call these out. We uh, we referenced this briefly, but uh, those who described their organizations as, as toxic cultures, they were 16 times more likely to say that there was a lack of trust in senior leaders. And trust is something we'll hear a lot more about, in my opinion, over the next couple of years. We're definitely seeing a, a, a trust factor between employees and leaders. Uh, a lot of that boils down to um, behaviors of leaders and are we are we uh, training those leaders on the behaviors we expect and are they in line with the values of the organization? Uh, some of it boils down to collaboration and communication and how, how often and frequently uh, are those senior leaders communicating? Um, there's a number of other issues that go into it, but I think that trust, that lack of trust is a big issue. And then also the, the bottom one, that uh, those toxic environments were 10 times more likely to say we don't have psychological safety here. We, we, uh, we don't feel like we can express uh, our opinions or concerns. It, it uh, goes back to the trust factor, uh, but we've been talking about psychological safety for a long time, and it continues to bubble up as a, a real separator between healthy environments and unhealthy environments. Absolutely. Uh, this is another one, Catherine, that we found to be pretty interesting, and I'll let you uh, talk to this. Sure. 
So when examining which behaviors happen in organizations with any of those nine toxic traits, our study found that leadership actions, particularly inaction or unwanted behavior, emerged as a main catalyst. Um, so you can see here leaders in organizations with toxic cultures were four to five times more likely to be described as disregarding poor behavior when making decisions about talent, such as advancement and compensation, succession planning, performance ratings, uh, award and recognition, um, and, and high high potential employee, de uh, excuse me, <laughs> designations. Um, conversely, those with organizations that had fit cultures were six times more likely to report that behavioral issues are addressed as soon as they are identified. And I like to tie this back to the other slide too on the psychological safety, you know, that we just discussed and trust. Um, I think there's a, a point about consistency. You, you know, dealing with poor behavior consistently um, and right away, um, and when leaders demonstrate, you know, values consistently, um, you'll see that as another item that's really important in driving health culture. Um, employees know what to expect and therefore they can trust more in their leadership. Um, so I think that there's a, a consistency aspect. And then when organizations vary a lot in how they respond to talent decisions, um, there's a there's a lack of trust that develops quickly. Yeah. I think sometimes the, the the problem is in the definition of poor behavior. You know what uh, what somebody might view as poor behavior, somebody else might not. And I think that's where you get into some gray areas inside of organizations. But when it's obvious poor behavior, uh, it's something that absolutely has to be addressed in, in, to keep a culture healthy. And it's the age old con conundrum: uh, Does the end justify the means? And in healthy cultures, they they recognize that the means are just as important as the results. Uh, they are not overlooking those um, brilliant jerks inside the organization, uh, or as Bob Sutton uh, put it, you know, the, the, in his uh, "No Asshole Rule" book, you know, those those people that are are very competent and ultimately get the job done, uh, but just leave a path of destruction in their in their wake. Uh, that can be so detrimental long term to the organization. And I think we find time and time again, healthy cultures address that and they make sure that uh, the behaviors match up to the results themselves. Absolutely. Um, we have an interesting question from John Aubrey. Would you agree that lack of trust in senior leaders also makes change harder to implement effectively? Yeah, I and would. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Catherine. You, yeah, you answer that one. No, I, I, I agree it would, but I also don't think um, a culture uh, reset or culture renovation um, is impossible if people don't trust their senior leaders. I think a culture renovation um, following some of the 18 steps that you identify in your book, uh, Kevin, um, that, that initial research on culture that, that we started a year or so ago, um, there, there's a, a restart that can happen and, and trust can be built when, it, when it's done collaboratively. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm looking at this question from Cecilia. Uh, thanks, Tom, for pointing this out, um, that sometimes it's not very obvious that you have a toxic culture. Um, so, you know, you can uh, use the term blindside here. But, uh, you know, one, one of the things that we've been suggesting to companies for some time now, Cecilia, um, is that if an executive team locks themselves in a conference room and decides amongst themselves what's right and what's wrong about the culture, uh, they inevitably are going to get it wrong. And that's because uh, things are filtered by the time they get to the executive team. Uh, they don't necessarily know the true issues that are bubbling under the surface inside the organization. And that's what blindsided companies like uh, Wells Fargo with their sales issues uh, or Boeing and the 737 MAX tragedies. Uh, you know, we, we could go on and on. There are a number of companies that, you know, have had some cultural issues that ultimately just kind of blew up on them. And had they employed a listening strategy throughout the workforce and really understood employee sentiment and created an environment that was psychologically safe to, to share that sentiment, uh, they would have understood some of those cultural issues. And so listening is, a, you know, something that we think is just core to making sure you have a, a healthy culture and is something we called out in the report itself. Absolutely. And thoughts on that? No, we're going to talk about um, making sure you're measuring continually as well. And I think that will help. But um, I also just posted uh, for members on the call. Uh, we have an excellent listening employee listening series. There was a white paper that was recently produced. It's fantastic. Um, great resources there. 
Now, the good news is that not all cultures suffered during the pandemic. We found uh, more companies said that their, their culture actually became healthier during the pandemic. And that's great because I think a number of these companies developed healthy habits that have carried them forward, and they're continuing to build some of those habits uh, that they developed during the pandemic. We saw a lot more expression of empathy um, by, by senior management in a lot of organizations. Uh, we saw it really sort of an appreciation for the full persona um, as opposed to just the work persona or office persona of individuals. And I think uh, you know, a lot of uh, people looked at their peers a little differently uh, during the pandemic, and that's carried forward uh, post-pandemic. So we found that healthy cultures um, excelled in certain core outcomes, and there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of stats on this uh, on this particular slide. So we'll walk through them. Uh, the first one is around uh, employee net promoter scores or ENPS. And Catherine, this is one that you just love uh, as a finding of this study. I, I do. Um, and it's it's sort of a chicken or the egg, right? Um, but the fit cultures, those with the healthiest cultures, um, were nine times more likely to report an excellent ENPS score between 71 and 100 um, compared to unfit or toxic counterparts. Um, and, you know, when employees want to recommend, um, you know, their organization to their friends, their family, that's a really good sign that you have a culture, a good culture. And I think this is a, a key stat to, tr to look at over time. What are the trends in your ENPS score? You know, are you trending up? Are you trending down? This will be a good indicator, uh, certainly as an early warning sign if you have some issues in your culture. Well, we also found since the onset of the pandemic, there were a number of other things that uh, these healthy cultures had in common. Uh, they were four and a half times more likely to report an increase in their employee engagement scores overall. Uh, they're also four times more likely to have experienced improved retention of existing employees. That, to me, was a very eye-catching uh, finding from this study, and one that I know a lot of companies will, uh, you know, find interesting. Just as they're trying to make sure that they retain their employees, even though we've uh, had some headlines around layoffs, unemployment remains at historic lows, and retention is an issue for a lot of organizations, particularly of their hypos and and their uh, high performers. Uh, another stat that I think will attract a lot of attention is that uh, healthy cultures were three times more likely to report that they had a better ability to attract top talent uh, to their company. Uh, again, that we're, we're still seeing a lot of organizations struggle to find the right talent uh, for the future of their organization. So I thought that was a really cool finding. Um, we talked about increase, increased uh, productivity. They were two times more likely to report that they had increased uh, employee productivity in the workforce, and nearly three times more likely to report improved well-being. I think those two things go hand in hand with each other, and uh, and certainly is a, a, a outcome of having a healthy culture. And the last one was around uh, diversity. We found that nearly one and a half times more likely uh, were companies to report that they improved their diversity and representation if they had uh, a healthy culture. Um, so great stats and kudos, Catherine, for unearthing these as part of the uh, analysis of all the data that we had. I like to think of them as wonderful symptoms of a healthy culture. <laughs> and here are some wonderful traits. So I'll let you walk through some of these. Sure. So the, just as toxic organizations, participants from toxic organizations tended to talk about their organization and describe it in common ways, um, those from our healthiest organizations also had common traits that bubbled up. Um, as they used to describe their organization. And again, this is from that extensive list, 26 options that they could have chosen, including another. And um, those of the very healthiest cultures tended to use these six. They had the strongest correlation. Um, and interestingly, so in our report, you know, and we've talked about it so far already, but we, we talk about fit versus unfit cultures. Well, we started the survey out with a Likert scale, right? Asking uh, people to rate their culture currently and, on, and range from very healthy to very toxic. Um, and then we corroborated that with what these six traits, which show the strongest correlation to healthy. So, so we've got a very strong definition of what is fit. Um, and, and which cultures are, are doing this well and that we can watch. And we know now some of the strategies and practices that um, they're doing to uh, improve their culture. And we'll get to those shortly. I could uh, jump in here real quick. We've got a question from the chat from Mara. Um, 
with all of this compelling data that's correlating performance, productivity, retention, attraction, um, she asks, why do you think there are so there is so much resistance to changing uh, many leaders, their their leadership style? Is it a lack of awareness on their part or resistance to change? What do we think it is? Well, I think the key word in that question was data. Um, I think those leaders are ignoring data or not utilizing data and taking an evidence-based approach to how they're leading in the organization. And we, we see it time and time again, uh, you know, just because they've been in the news a ton, uh, Twitter is a good example, uh, where clearly Elon Musk um, is using gut instinct and his own, you know, personal preferences uh, to managing a number of aspects of the culture. And so in you know, initially it was everybody back in the office. Uh, just recently, he's now embraced some aspects of remote work, mainly around the shutting of the Seattle office and, and a couple other offices and not firing everybody that was in those offices and letting them work remotely. Um, but it's sort of knee-jerk reaction and not really using employee sentiment or what employees want or some of the data like that we're presenting here uh, to make those decisions. And so I think that's one of the biggest reasons. I'd, I'd love to hear Catherine or Tom, you know, what you think. I agree. I mean, I think culture has been looked at as some sort of squishy, nebulous, hard to define thing that people just think happens to your organization organically through the people you bring in. Um, you know, it's a culture by demographic design, I guess. Um, but, you know, I think as, as we'll show in the next slide, there there is, you know, a way to control your fate, you know, to control the fate of the organization's culture. Um, and we have, you know, evidence-based strategies that can move the needle on culture health. Um, but again, seeing that data, I think, is very important for leaders to see that connection, too, between market performance um, and culture. And, yeah, I, I guess I'll just I'll just add on that question, that point, um, not to make excuses for these leaders, but yes, if they haven't seen the, this kind of powerful data that you all that you two are sharing today, they need to because they've gotten to where they are as leaders, leading in certain ways. So until they're confronted with alternatives, with other data, um, <clears throat> other strategies. They're going to continue to, to lead in the ways that they've led. I, this has come up when we've talked about hybrid and remote work. Um, you know, they the, a lot of these folks were always in the office and they got to they've risen up in the ranks at multiple companies. Often they're on boards and everything by being in the office all these years. And so that that's what they know. It worked for them. So why can't it work for everyone else? So I think there may be a little bit of that sort of holdover uh, mentality. And so, Catherine, what I've built out here are the, the, the seven habits that you found of very healthy cultures. Do you want to walk through those? Um, sure. So you can read this, the seven here, and we are going to go through flexibility and a learning mindset and those four items um, that leaders are responsible for uh, in the next few slides. So what I really wanted to focus on here was number three, um, boards that care about culture. Um, so organizations that indicated their board cares about or thinks about culture as important to a high extent. Um, those had a very strong correlation to um, to the health of their culture, obviously. So if the board cares about it, they're driving, you know, practices and theory. Um, they're, they're bringing sunlight to the culture data. Um, they're going to help make and influence that culture, right? That makes sense. Um, but this is also another reason for, I think, leaders to take note and especially for boards to take note and start to think seriously about culture um, and leadership change. Um, recent legal decisions, and then there's the forthcoming human capital disclosure regulations from the SEC. Um, the EU's already implemented their own. Um, extensive reporting on human capital is, is coming, if not here already. Um, and so organizations, especially boards, are going to really have to start looking at culture and caring um, and of course, there was that uh, Delaware court decision recently um, that ruled in the case of McDonald's, former CHRO, that shareholders can sue officers for failing to build a healthy culture. Um, and so if we could, I'll, I'll post an article in the chat on that as well. So it's just another reason that boards should care about culture, because obviously that's not in your control per se. Um, but um, it's another reason to bubble to the surface why culture needs to be front and center in the board. Well, I think HR needs to be prepared for the data that boards are going to be demanding around culture, um, particularly as they set up separate culture subcommittees um, as, as part of the governance process in those boards. And uh, we've certainly talked a lot about that in the past. Absolutely. 
Here, here are some traits um, of fit cultures, you know, much like we showed some traits of unfit cultures and the frequency that they were mentioned um, versus those unfit cultures. Uh, so we've covered uh, several of these already, but I thought this was a very interesting list. And we, we, we um, uh, use this really almost as the definition of a healthy culture uh, overall. They certainly have a lot in common as you, as you scan down that list. But building on the idea of traits of healthy cultures, this is a chart that came out of our work on culture renovation and was in the uh, book, Culture Renovation, looking at different common culture types. Um, there are a lot more types than just what's listed here, but these are the ones that are more commonly mentioned by organizations, um, certainly do, you know, from our research. And then leadership traits and employee traits that usually um, equate to that, that culture type. And then we gave some examples of companies that you would think of as part of uh, the culture types. This is now a new um, favorite chart of mine uh, that we've brought out because of Twitter on here. Um, when we put this chart together, um, Twitter was often thought of as a collaborative uh, company. And you can see the leadership traits were facilitator and transparent. Employee traits were open-minded and team-oriented. I think that there we'd have some different descriptors now um, if we you know surveyed folks around uh, what they felt about the traits inside the company. So that's how quickly things can change uh, around a culture, um, certainly based on leaders, and leaders have a huge impact on uh, on what the culture is. So think about you know what culture type is your organization overall. And I don't know were we going to do a poll on this one, Catherine, or we just decide to uh, skip that. I can't remember. I believe so, Zeta. Do we have a, there we are. Okay, so if you could take a second and you can pick more than one here and most cultures are more than one, although we found that uh, very few cultures have all of these traits um, that they would say are, are indicative of their company. Um, but uh, tell us what culture types you have in your organization and we'll see how that maps to some of our previous data. Oh, interesting. I, I was doing the breakdown by industry of our data, um, and it turned out so purpose and mission is the top trait for those in the healthcare industry. No, you know, no surprise, but that's what you would expect, right? It's what you want. Um, sure. Yeah, it's customer focused in business services. You know, that was their number one. Um, and, and purpose and mission also for education uh, in the education industry. Catherine's been doing some interesting uh, breakdowns, not only by industry, but also by geography. And we found uh, definitely some differences between uh, North America, particularly US and Canada. And then as you compare that region to Europe or to Asia um, and how they are describing their organizations, we, we found particularly some uh, interesting differences in Europe um, versus the rest of the world. And uh, she'll be publishing an article on that shortly. Yeah, I just, uh, I guess the teasers, the uh, companies headquartered in Canada have the healthiest cultures. Of all the other regions. <laughs> so our Canadian friends will love that. Yes. All right. Um, are we ready to uh, stop the poll here? I think so. So it, it looks like um, there's a lot of uh, similarity to what uh, we had on the, um, on the slide here. Uh, customer focus was a, uh, a popular answer, the number one most popular answer. Um, but things like, let's see, um, purpose and mission, as you just called out, Catherine, uh, was also a top answer, along with collaborative and performance. Um, the one that uh, wasn't necessarily as popular here, Agile, I think is going to become much more popular going forward. Uh, as I said earlier, I think a lot of CEOs a lot of senior teams want to instill more agility inside their organization. Uh, when I talk to senior leaders, that's one that gets brought up a, quite a bit. They're also looking to have a more inclusive culture um, and more innovative culture. Those are things that I often hear uh, senior leaders say I want more of going forward. All right, so why don't we move on here and Let's talk a little bit about flexibility. And Catherine, again, I'll turn it over to you. All right. Um, getting caught up with my notes um, here. So, so we've got, we asked organizations um, to tell us about their, their work model. 
um, before the pandemic and today. And we, we categorized it as mostly on site, mostly hybrid, mostly remote. I know that's kind of vague, but it'll give you the sort of the gist of how their workforce, their work model is structured. Um, and we found that those organizations that were mostly remote, remote um, had a very high correlation to healthy culture. Um, and uh, th their cultures had improved over the past two years, they got healthier. Um, but also a very strong correlation to improved employee well-being over the past two years. And I, you know, I, that, that makes a lot of sense is that we've heard from, uh, you know, various places that, you know, those who have been working remote have a lot more uh, work-life flexibility. Um, but, I, you know, I think that that key really is flexibility. Um, and, and when you look at uh, companies that are doing hybrid, right, um, the majority of our survey participants were in this hybrid um, model of some kind. And they filled out sort of the, if you're looking at the data in a bell curve, they're, they're most of that bell. Um, but there was no statistical correlation between, um, you know, being hybrid and any employee outcomes. Um, and I think that's because there are a lot of, there's a lot of variation in what we call hybrid. And, and a lot of the hybrid models um, are not um, as flexible as employees mm -hmm. would like. They're getting sort of pulled back into the office out of their, um, you know, not out of their own uh, will, and um, and you know they're in they're on Zoom meetings in the office and so forth instead of actually collaborating. So um, I think there's lots more to do um, with that hybrid model that we have um, in improving that. Yeah, in many organizations, hybrid is a forced model uh, on employees, and so I think a lot of this boils down to autonomy. You know, how much autonomy are you giving employees to have work-life blend as opposed to just balance? You know, having the ability to control. Uh, when you do work, when you're not doing work, uh, where you're doing that work, uh, whereas some hybrid models are saying you must be in the office, you know, these days of the week at these times, uh, and it doesn't give that autonomy. So I, I think you're spot on, Catherine, with that observation. Yeah. I, and one last thing I'll note on this is that um, those organizations that indicated they're mostly on site today um, had a negative correlation to employee productivity. So kind of, um, you know, on that note, you know, how is work arrangement really affecting productivity? How is work arrangement affecting culture? I think there's going to be some interesting connections there. We also found interesting connections around the topic of learning. And um, this builds on uh, other research that we've done in the past that showed similar connections that cultures of learning generally are not only healthy cultures, but they're also high performing organizations. And I just love this, and I know a lot of my learning friends on the line uh, love this finding, um, that when we share knowledge as a workforce, uh, generally we're going to be a more inclusive organization, we're going to be a more agile organization, because we is smarter than me, and so we're really leveraging uh, the collective wisdom of the entire workforce. And we're combating the, that age-old problem of knowledge is power. Uh, a lot of organizations that have toxic cultures, they they let that fester. They let people selectively use their knowledge to protect themselves, protect their fiefdoms, uh, as opposed to, to recognizing and rewarding people who are sharing knowledge on a regular basis. Um, I love some of the other bullet points here just around having senior leaders and, and uh, mid-level uh, mid and frontline leaders all trained on the desired behaviors. Uh, we, we're going to have a wonderful presentation at our conference by Anna White, who's uh, the CHRO at F5, and they've done a great job at training their leaders on the behaviors that they expect inside their organization. Um, I, the third one is a favorite of mine around internal mobility. We've got an HBR article out there and webinar and uh, a lot of research on that topic alone. We're seeing more and more attention to mobility these days as companies recognize it's a great way uh, to not only retain employees, but to develop employees inside the organization. The more we get them moving around inside the organization, it, um, it improves the collaboration and communication of the, of the company as well uh, and improves overall the culture health. So internal mobility is a strategy not formalized in many companies, but the companies that have formalized it, they tend to be off the charts, high performing organizations. So if you haven't um, looked at how do you formalize a mobility program inside your organization, take a look at some of the, the research that we've already done on that topic and see what you can do to increase that. And it, it really kind of feeds into this last bullet point, a favorite topic of Tom's uh, around how do you build an internal talent marketplace? Uh, a lot of that boils down to creating a skills database um, initially and just really understanding the skills 
that you have amongst the workforce? And then how are you staffing projects and initiatives based on those skills as opposed to based on where somebody is in the org chart or where they uh, physically reside? That internal talent marketplace, again, is not something that has been formalized in a majority of organizations, but more and more companies are putting that in place. And the ones that do tend to have very healthy cultures and tend to be high-performing organizations. But Tom or Catherine, anything else you'd want to add to that? Uh, I'll just jump in uh, since, uh, yes, I, I've done a lot of work on skills databases, talent mobility, internal talent marketplaces, and I was just presenting on that topic to the Training 2023 conference in Orlando uh, just earlier this week. Uh, and uh, there were, a lot, even though it was an L&D conference, there were a lot of leaders at that event. Uh, that were very interested, uh, and some of them already sort of knee-deep in that journey and, and wanting to hear best practices on, on how to move forward. Great. And Tom, I'm now looking at the uh, chat, so if there's any questions there that you uh, you want to throw out to us, please do. Um, a couple other things that we want to mention. One is that uh, leaders are clearly the linchpin of healthy cultures. Um, those healthy cultures generally have leaders who are leading by example, they are being held accountable for employee outcomes, such as development and, and promotions of employees. Uh, they're being held accountable on things like diversity uh, and other metrics that really focus on the employees themselves, as opposed to just the business outcomes. Um, they are regularly communicating values and, as we talked about earlier, uh, addressing that poor behavior uh, immediately and not letting it fester. Interestingly too, leaders consistently demonstrating organizational values. Uh, that had the highest, the, excuse me, the largest influence on culture compared to sort of all the other variables in the study. Um, it accounted for 42% of how leaders assessed their organization's culture fitness. Um, so, so that's a really big deal. And it goes back to, again, leader behaviors um, and consistency. Excellent. Now, Catherine mentioned earlier um, that uh, healthy cultures are doing a very good job at measuring and monitoring um, what's happening from the culture perspective. And so uh, as part of this study, we took a look at a couple of aspects of that. One was the methods that companies are using to measure. Uh, and this, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are some of the things that healthier cultures are doing. They're, look, they're doing specific culture audits. They're doing stay interviews, particularly with their high performers and high potentials inside the organization. Um, they're listening to customers. They're, they're listening to employees, much like we talked about earlier, uh, from an employee sentiment perspective. And when it comes to the specific measures that they're looking at, these are some of the measures that those healthy cultures pay attention to. Uh, and I think it's important that whenever you're looking at measures, you're looking at multiple measures. You're not just relying on one or two, like employee engagement, which is one that a lot of companies have been relying on uh, to measure your culture. Oftentimes, those surveys are a point in time and you can get false positives. And so you want to have multiple measures and measure frequently uh, so that you can see what's trending over time. And that's really the key word is trending uh, in culture. Anything else you want to add on this one, Catherine? Um, we'll start on the last two slides. You know, one thing that you've talked a lot about and is in your book is, um, you know, using, uh, you know, continually listening, right? And using um, natural language processing to sort of, to understand those sort of the greater sentiments. So you can use Likert skills and all, you know, in your surveys, um, but you're, you're gonna get more from employees. You're gonna understand more if you have open response questions, if you have interviews that sort of like the, the qualitative stuff. So having the technology to analyze those and surface, um, you know, trends and themes within those comments is going to be really helpful. And you could use the toxic nine, you could use the six characteristics of very healthy cultures. Um, to If you're seeing those trends bubble up, those traits bubble up, excuse me, um, you'll know you've got where you've got healthy and where you've got sort of toxic pockets. And that listening extends beyond just inside the organization. We often have used natural language processing tools to scrape Glassdoor and other uh, external sites to see from an employer brand perspective what people are saying about the culture externally. Uh, sometimes that can be disgruntled employees for sure, um, but it's what your uh, candidates are reading. And it's I think it's important uh, data for any organization to consider when you're looking at 
the overall culture. You'll you'll get uh, sometimes a little bit more truth externally than you than you do get internally, and so it's important to uh, factor that into the whole equation. So, Catherine, you. you uh, you had this chart in the study, which is a nice sort of um, ending chart around some of the interve interventions that positively influence culture. So what you're seeing here are nine actions your organization can take that our regression analysis has found to impact or influence culture fitness. Um, so as you can see here, leaders' consistent demonstration of organizational values reigns supreme in its ability to move the needle on culture and explaining 43% of how participants rated culture health. Um, and the above percentages, these are based on R squared values. Uh, if you're familiar with multiple regression, um, that's what we're looking at. Um, but again, they sort of tell you how much of culture influence they can move uh, independently uh, and, and, and controlling for size of the organization and market performance. Yeah, let me just call out that first one that you emphasize, leaders consistently demonstrating organizational values, because I think that's part of the answer to Andres's question in the chat. He said, um, how, how can we make sure we live and breathe our company's values? He hears from his friends complaining that at their organizations, the values only exist in the walls, but but people don't actually live them. And I think that top line here is, is, a, is a key driver of, of organizations that do that well. One of the things we're hearing um, in a lot of our interviews is that organizations have recently or are in the process of uh, revising their, their mission or purpose statements um, and then taking those and determining, you know, identifying what are the behaviors, what are, you know, that actually exude those values that actually support those. And then how can we hold leaders accountable um, for, for those actions and, you know, performance management processes. And I, I, you know, I see here the second one, holding leaders accountable for employee outcomes, 29% um, impact, right, influence on, I explained 29% of how uh, participants rated their culture health. So um, that's a, it's a big part of sort of the, the, the model in, in how, how do you get in, incentivize and support leaders um, in demonstrating those behaviors. Yeah, there's certainly some common common themes here at the top of this chart. Um, and again, these are uh, issues that we continue to explore and try to bring out examples of companies that we think are doing a good job on this. Um, it, it's very clear that employees are going to do what leaders do. They're not going to do what's in the PowerPoint um, or, or framed on the wall. Um, and you can see towards the bottom, you know, the the talent mobility programs and the uh, uh, internal talent marketplace that we talked about before. Those are also things that uh, we found through that uh, um, analysis are have a big influence on cultural health overall. Now, if if you're thinking, OK, our culture needs to be revamped uh, and we've got to figure out how do we change it? We certainly want to direct you towards culture renovation. Uh, this was uh, put together as a blueprint based on very successful organizations that have changed their culture, and that is a that's a small minority of overall companies that have tried to change their culture. Um, that lists out 18 leadership actions that companies can take, and these are sequential actions uh, to really uh, have impact on the overall culture. We um, we term this culture renovation. If you're not familiar with it, renovation uh, was a very specific term that we found. Um, uh, really solidified what uh, the, so those successful organizations had done to their culture. They didn't transform their culture, which is the word most people use, uh, and or become something completely different. Instead, just like an old house, they carefully renovated what made them unique, what was hard to replace, and they, uh, they renovated for future value. How do we improve the future value uh, of the organization, just like you would an old house? And so this was a study um, based on, as you can see, a lot of respondents, um, and many of which had had experience with culture change, but very few found it, um, it successful. And those uh, 18 steps are divided using that renovation theme into three phases of plan, build, and maintain. So each one of these phases has six different um, uh, steps that, that companies can take. And we'll uh, make these slides available so you can see those steps if you're not familiar with them. You can also see those steps out on our website, culturerenovation.com. Uh, there's a lot more info that isn't necessarily in the book 
um, such as additional case studies. There's a newsletter that's monthly, um, and you can see past editions of that newsletter or sign up for future editions, as well as some tools around how do we really have positive change to our culture and make it healthier going forward. So we want to make sure that you uh, uh, knew where to find those resources. Tom, uh, while we have a few minutes left, uh, anything else in the chat that you think would be useful for Catherine or I to address? Uh, <clears throat> I think we've addressed most of the questions. I did respond uh, to one from Lindsay. She had asked, um, did we tease out in this study uh, any differences in, in, in companies that were largely remote or largely hybrid, at least prior to the pandemic? And Catherine, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that we specifically called that out as a as an independent variable or whatnot that we could look at differences. Um, but I th but I think we did in some previous studies, um, and certainly anecdotally in talking to companies, we've we've learned that like those like Dell, for example, um, you know, I think had less turmoil, less less change maybe during the pandemic because they had had already had a hybrid and largely remote uh, workforce. And, and I wanted to also highlight that at our conference, we're going to be having Wendy Barnes, the chief people officer from GitLab. Um, they've been a firm somewhat smaller in size to, to some, but over a thousand employees that's been fully remote for many, many years since their inception. In fact, I think going back maybe 15 years. And so at our conference coming up in late March, we're going to learn from her uh, some of the some of the things that they went through and and uh, some of the best practices that they've learned from from such a long history of, of working that way. Yeah, great call out, Tom. To Lindsay's point, um, I just posted a link in the chat to our flexibility uh, or flight study that we did last year. Um, in that, we did an analysis. We looked at companies that had drastically changed from on-site to remote today, and this was, of course, last year. Um, and those countries are companies that had made a drastic shift um, had positive outcomes. I, I, I believe that some of the employee, the workforce um, outcomes were there as well. I'd, I'd have to go back and look at the study, but um, th there were positive um, consequences of, of having a more drastic shift, if you will. Um, but we we did those correlations with looking at um, the workforce, the work model today. So I, you know, we we said basically, if you're mostly remote today, um, you know, and we looked at the correlations there, and there was a strong correlation to well-being and improved well-being. Um, that was the workforce today, uh, what their work arrangement looked like. Thank you for listening to this episode of I4CP's Next Practices Weekly podcast. I encourage you to join us live for these discussions each Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific time, so that you can ask questions of our guests and co-hosts and participate in the conversation. Just go to i4cp.com forward slash events to register. We hope you'll keep tuning in as I4CP brings you more great HR executives to discuss how high performance organizations are leveraging best and next practices in HR. Uh, registration is open for our Next Practices Now conference in late March this year in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, it's an annual tradition that we're super excited to be back to after two years of being virtual only. It is both in-person and virtual, so if you can't make it in Scottsdale, you do have that other option, and there'll be a lot more information coming on the speaker lineup very soon. Thank you, and we hope you have a great and productive week ahead.